Remember that big terrorism case back in 2003, the Detroit sleeper cell case? In Detroit tonight, closing arguments have ended and a jury is set to deliberate the first case against an alleged terror cell inside the U.S. This is the first terrorism case after the September 11th attacks to go to trial. There were convictions. It was a big deal. And then something strange happened. The Justice Department, the very institution that put these guys on trial in the first place, went out and voluntarily asked the judge to reverse the convictions. They undid their own victory. And they didn't stop there. They turned around and brought criminal charges against the very guy who prosecuted their case, their own colleague. You're going to hear a lot about this prosecutor today. His name is Richard G. Convertino. He used to be a rising star at the Justice Department with commendations from the Attorney General, the head of the FBI. He sent mobsters and drug gangs and white-collar criminals to prison. Today we try to answer the question, what the hell happened? What could possibly happen that would make the U.S. government overturn its own successful conviction? and then go after its own prosecutor. We're debating a whole show today to this story. It is This American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Petra Bartosiewicz has been covering terrorism prosecutions for a few years, this one included. And she tells her story. So what kind of prosecutor was Rick Convertino? Well, that depends on who you ask. He was relentless. He was just an excellent prosecutor. I really think Mr. Convertino is fooling everybody, even his wife. He's a devil. Rick was sought after. You know, he got things done. He had the reputation, at least in the legal community, of someone not to be trusted. Call me when you hear him admit to a mistake, would you please? Here are some of the undisputed facts about Richard G. Convertino. For the 16 years he was a federal prosecutor, he loved standing in front of juries and declaring that he represented the United States of America. He sometimes got to the office before dawn. He took on cases other attorneys wouldn't, stayed involved with victims, and even sometimes the defendants after a case was over. But his supervisor told me, if you didn't see things Rick's way, you were a bum. And woe to the prosecutor Rick caught checking Michigan football draft picks on the internet or slacking off in the break room. Rick traveled constantly for trials, even after he and his wife Valerie started having kids. He was away most of Val's second pregnancy and was out working on a bank fraud trial the day she went into labor. I had to drive my oldest daughter to the babysitter, and then I drove myself to the hospital. (laughs) And he didn't get to see her till she was about two days old. He was gone for most of her third pregnancy, too. I thought he was doing the right thing. I thought, you know, I I kind of viewed his traveling as being similar to, you know, a military family. That the sacrifice that I was making was for my country as well, so that he could do his job. We thought the sacrifices we were making meant something, you know, meant a lot. But, uh, you know, in retrospect now, for me, it's impossible not to be bitter. It's conceivable that everything that happened to Rick and to the Detroit sleeper cell case comes down to office politics gone terribly awry. The office politics of the U.S. Department of Justice are like the office politics anywhere else, except the stakes are higher. You know, justice. The story begins just six days after September 11th. After the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, law enforcement suddenly had this new directive, stop the next attack catch the terrorists before they strike again. 
Outside of Detroit, agents went out looking for number 27 on the FBI's terrorist watch list, Nabil al-Marab, a supposed associate of Osama bin Laden. They ended up at al-Marab's last known address, a dumpy two-story house in Dearborn. The front door had the uh, the name Nabil al-Marab on it. An FBI agent knocked on the door, and um, down came one of the defendants, Kareem Kabridi, to answer the door. I just came back from work, and I was taking a shower. Then I'm done with the shower, I heard knocking the door, and somebody calling Nabil, Nabil, Nabil. So I went down, see, because it was, they were knocking hard. So they asked me for my ID. I was in my backside, so I don't have my ID on. So I was like, I'm going to go upstairs to get it. As soon as I turn, they follow me. During the protective sweep, they find two airport identification badges for Detroit Wayne County Airport. I used to work in a company called SkyShift. This company provides food for airplanes. We were fired because we had a car accident and we didn't go for two days, so they fired us. But nobody told us to turn over the badges, so we were thrown on the table. And then they were asked about their work history, and none of them mentioned the airport, which caused, you know, concern. And as soon as they see that metro airport, everything changed. Like, we lied to them or something, and the FBI guy was like, real hard, why you lied to me? I was like, lie to you about what? So uh, they were placed in um, uh, handcuffs, and the agents asked for permission to search the apartment. Because I just came to the country, it was like 10 months, I don't even speak the language, I don't know, I I thought it was like a regular thing, you know, (laughs) in the beginning that's how I think about it, you know, it wasn't a big deal, I was literally, when they pulled their guns out, I was a little upset. During the search of his room, Kubridi told the agents they'd find some fake documents there, a fake passport, fake social security card, blank birth certificates, which they did. Then out of a small closet, one of the agents pulled down a black suitcase. In its side pocket, she found a day planner. Kubridi told the FBI that none of this stuff was his, that it belonged to an ex-roommate. It all looked bad, but the day planner was by far the most disturbing thing the agents found. Flipping through the pages, they saw suspicious-looking sketches, simplistic drawings of what looked like airplanes flying into some kind of objects, and then what looked to be an explosion. Remember, this was less than a week since the collapse of the World Trade Center. So Rick started to put together this very unusual kind of case. He sorted through the evidence from the apartment, trying to figure out not what had happened, but instead what was maybe going to happen. He says he showed the day planner to intelligence experts. This page, as interpreted by the Air Force, was that there were three types of aircraft, fighter planes, the F-16s, the refueling planes. At first glance, this sketch might look like a drawing your kindergartner would do. But if you stare at it a minute or two, you begin to wonder why your kindergartner would draw the three kinds of American planes enforcing the no-fly zone over northern Iraq. It's crude, but you can understand what's so troubling about it. The words American base in Turkey are written at the top. The U.S. does have a single air base in the Middle East, in Turkey, in the town of Inserlik. The sketch shows what looks to be three stick-figure planes, each drawn slightly differently, lined up at the end of a runway, and a squiggly blob on the lower left that some Air Force experts said might have represented a hardened bunker. So this, this was, when this was seen by the the Office of Special Investigations in the United States Air Force, it was taken very seriously. 
uh, and um, their flight patterns were altered, and the um, base was, um, I believe, was temporarily shut down. Because of this crude sketch that your four-year-old daughter might uh, be able to do, um, the Air Force believed that an attack was diverted. While he was preparing for the trial, Rick went to Turkey to see Inserlik for himself. He went onto the roof of a nearby bakery that overlooks the runway, the same vantage point the Air Force said the sketch was drawn from. And there was a rickety ladder, and uh, there was a rain pipe, and there was a rope. So I climbed up, had the sketch in my hand, and I looked out across that field, and I saw what was depicted on that sketch. I saw those three types of planes. I saw um, what um, was uh, referenced as the hardened bunker to the lower left. Um, So that sketch became real to me. This was exactly what the Attorney General wanted um, prosecutors all over the country to be looking for. A would-be terrorist plot in the making, and we just were lucky to capture them when we did. This is Jeffrey Breinholt. These days he works at a national security think tank. He's on leave from the Justice Department, where he was a top official in the Terrorism and Violent Crime section in Washington. He was one of the people supervising the Detroit sleeper cell case. Current Justice Department officials in Washington wouldn't talk to us for this story. It was Breinholt's job to develop these brand new kinds of terrorism cases, preemptive prosecutions, where you charge the bad guys with a crime before they hurt anyone. So here Rick's case comes along. It was one of the major early cases of our um, testing both our laws and our new philosophy, and we wanted to make sure it got done right. And we had to make sure that it wasn't an embarrassment. This would be just about the last time Rick and his bosses in D.C. would see eye to eye on the case. Four men in Detroit were charged with conspiring to provide information to terrorists for a series of attacks on the U.S. and overseas. As the arrests began to get attention, Rick felt that the higher-ups in D.C. were messing with his case. Someone inside the department leaked the details of the government's case to Fox News before the grand jury had signed off on it. A huge no-no. Fox News correspondent Catherine Herridge reports... A Michigan grand jury has handed up an indictment against four men, including Kareem Kubridi... The judge on the case, Gerald Rosen, was peeved as well. He wouldn't go on the record for this story, but he talked about it at a recent terrorism forum. I saw this uh, when I was watching the evening news, uh, and the political correspondent of one of the networks was reading the indictment before the grand jury had issued it. Needless to say, that was disturbing. By the way, I also found out that I had the case when I was watching the evening news. (laughs) They showed a picture of the indictment on the screen with my name on it. From Rick's point of view, it wasn't helpful for them to be irritating the judge before they even began. To top it off, the judge had issued a gag order on the case, meaning no one was supposed to talk about it. But then the attorney general himself, John Ashcroft, violated it, not once, but twice during the case, saying things that didn't match the facts. Here's Rick. We were asked uh, if, if I was asked if, if our case had any connection with September 11th or any of the um, individuals who were involved in September 11th, and there was absolutely no connection that I saw, or that anyone who was working the case saw, and we said that. And then there was a, a, um, an artificial connection was made publicly by the Attorney General. Ashcroft did this in a press briefing a month and a half after the arrests. 
Three Michigan men suspected of having knowledge of the September 11th attacks were arrested on charges of possessing false documents. In addition to and a so day planner that, you know, I was seeing that those uh, uh, manifestations of pure politics. Ashcroft had to retract the statement two days later. The judge formally admonished him for violating the gag order and ended up threatening him with contempt. To Rick, it felt like he and his bosses were out of step with each other, like their goals somehow weren't the same. Their goal was to disseminate information to the American people that uh, we were, um, you know, kicking ass and taking names on, in the Department of Justice in the war on terror. Um, I thought it's, you know, unmitigated bullshit. Meanwhile, Rick thought Justice Department headquarters in Washington, what's known as Maine Justice, wasn't giving him the resources or personnel or logistical support he needed to prosecute this new kind of terrorism case. Sometimes they seemed clueless to him, or completely incompetent, like when he asked him for another lawyer, a terrorism expert, to put on his team. I mean, my, my belief was that at the terrorism and violent crime section, you can get an expert on prosecuting terrorism-related cases, and I was wrong. I mean, there were, there were no genuine experts there in terrorism. You know, it was a shock to, to see how little those folks knew. Finally, D.C. did assign another attorney. The attorney was a good guy, wanted to work hard, uh, but um, he was from the tax division. So, I mean, to me, it was mind-boggling. As far as I could tell, there were no violations of federal income tax. To give you a sense of how personal these fights could get, here's Jeff Breinholt again the guy at Maine Justice who was helping formulate these new terrorism cases. If he's uh, using a tax attorney as a, a way to describe somebody who's not prepared, he's, he's basically condemning me as well because that's what I am. Um, and most of the people who we brought in to the counterterrorism business after 9-11 were people who, who were very specialized in financial techniques. That was exactly what this case needed, I think. That response is uh, astonishing to me. If the then, I think, acting chief of the Terrorism and Violent Crime Section uh, doesn't understand a non-financial terrorism-related case, then, you know, I think that that speaks for itself. There were many squabbles like this over things that were both petty and sort of fundamental. They couldn't even agree on what kind of help was helpful. And really, since it was a new kind of prosecution strategy, nobody could know for sure. There's a class of prosecutor that other federal prosecutors sometimes call true believers. For them, everything is black and white. One described himself to a researcher this way, We believe in the cause of justice. People look down on us for our enthusiasm, but we leave no stone unturned. That's like Rick. Anyone getting in the way of his case was an enemy of the cause. And Washington was getting in his way. Even the wording of the indictment was reason for a fight. An indictment lists the formal charges in a case. It's what the grand jury votes on. But Rick says Maine Justice tried to sensationalize the indictment by adding references to al-Qaeda documents found in training camps in Afghanistan, stuff he says had nothing to do with his case. It was as if they'd forgotten the rules of evidence. He felt he was being micromanaged by bureaucrats he was coming to respect less and less. Well, my dad always used to say, never trust a man whose ass is wider than his shoulders. And that's good advice. It is. It's good advice. And it was like, you know, Jesus Christ, what's the plan here?
In the end, Washington demanded changes to the indictment that the Detroit office didn't make. So Maine Justice felt Rick wasn't following orders. Rick felt Maine Justice was meddling. Things got so tense that a couple of senior officials from Washington, including the new chief of the entire counterterrorism section, a guy named Barry Sabin, flew out to Michigan for a face-to-face meeting about the case. And that's where the relationship went from bad to much worse. Here's Rick. This was uh, not a pleasant meeting. Uh, it was a constant uh, in-your-face uh, challenge to, you know, why we did things the way we did them. And after answering the question um, regarding the, the particular way a count was charged a number of times, I thought, he asked uh, me again, well, where did you get this from? Where did you get this from? And uh, in a um, fit of exasperation, in a not very uh, prudent manner, I um, told him that I pulled it out of my ass. Um, and uh, he looked at the U.S. attorney, uh, who was, uh, you know, devoid of words at the time, and then uh, the U.S. attorney looked at me and told me that was uh, uh, unprofessional, which I agreed it was. Um, and um, during the course of the conversation, again, I uh, again imprudently told him that I would like five minutes alone with him, preferably in an alley, uh, which, uh, again, didn't go over too big. Bear in mind, Barry Saban at the time is the chief of the counterterrorism section. So, I mean, this, that's no small thing. <laughs> again, Jeff Breinholt. It was not a good way to be in dealing with your headquarters component is to make them feel unwelcome. It's a, it's, it's a very unfortunate thing when things get to that point, but I think there was some sense at the time that this case is, uh, is something we should not have approved. Because of the personal issues or because of the substance of the case? Um, personal issues, the trust issue, is whether or not this case would be handled the way we wanted it to be. On March 18, 2003, exactly a year and a half after the arrests, and the same day U.S. forces started bombing Iraq, jury selection began. By this time, a fourth defendant, the alleged ringleader of the cell, had been added to the case. The evidence was almost all circumstantial, things like the day planner with the suspicious sketches, but there was a lot of it, and each scrap was aggressively contested. It wasn't one of those trials where one side seemed clearly in the right and the other in the wrong. Both sides seemed credible, which was especially strange, because often their explanations for what the evidence meant or where it came from couldn't even be reconciled. For instance, there was this homemade videotape found in the apartment, which the government claimed was shot by would-be terrorists casing Las Vegas and Disneyland for places to attack. The defense claimed the tape was shot by some Tunisian students goofing around on holiday. In the Disneyland part, there's this shot of a pond with some ducks swimming along. Someone sings a little song. According to Rick's translator, the words to the song were something like, them, the Americans, kill them and throw them there, bury them there. According to the defendant's lawyer, Rick Helfrich, they're singing a song about ducks. So it was either kill the Americans or hear ducky ducky, and so on through the trial. The trial went on for nine weeks, and in the end, the jury convicted two of the defendants, Cabridi and the accused ringleader of the most serious charge material support to terrorists. A third guy they found guilty of document fraud, and the fourth they decided was innocent. 
All in all, a good day for the Justice Department. Attorney General Ashcroft announced the verdicts, saying every victory in the courtroom brings us closer to our ultimate goal, victory in the war on terrorism. You'd think Rick would be the toast of the Justice Department. He'd worked incredibly hard on this case for years, and finally he'd won it for the government. The first jury convictions in a post-9-11 terrorism trial. Instead, he got a talking to from the top guy in Detroit, the U.S. attorney. Here's Rick. He said to me, I've been ordered to reprimand you. Uh, I said, by whom? He said, Washington. For what? For the lack of communication between uh, you and Washington. And I said, okay. Uh, And he said, okay, um, I can do it in a number of ways. I said, all right. And he said, uh, but I'm going to verbally reprimand you. I'm verbally reprimanding you. I said, okay, thank you, and went on my way. So there were a lot of ruffled feathers after the case. Um, And at that point in time, you know, when things were just starting to calm down, uh, this, uh, this contact with the senator comes up. This contact with the senator managed to re-ruffle every feather that had been smoothed. Because it wasn't just any senator. It was Charles Grassley, Republican from Iowa. Let's just say if the Justice Department had its own deck of most wanted cards depicting Capitol Hill enemies, this guy's face would have been on it. Grassley was known, and still is, as a champion of government whistleblowers, and he'd been scrapping with the Justice Department for many years. When Rick got the call from Grassley's staffers, Grassley was four months into yet another nasty fight. Because the DOJ wouldn't allow a couple of FBI employees to talk freely to Congress, Grassley was blocking nominations to some top positions inside justice. But Rick knew none of this, and anyway, that's not why the Grassley staffers had called him. They just wanted to talk about the sleeper cell case, for information for a hearing they were putting together about terrorism and document fraud for the Senate Finance Committee, which Grassley chaired. After talking to Rick for a bit, they asked him to testify at the hearing. And while all this might sound perfectly innocent to you and me, the idea that Rick might cooperate with the Justice Department's archenemy, even on a topic as neutral as document fraud, really irritated Rick's bosses. He got a call from a senior justice official who told him these requests are supposed to go through Maine Justice in Washington. And then he told me, Grassley's no friend of ours. And uh, he used some choice words, and uh, um, I think I said, whatever. Whatever wasn't going to cut it. There was a strict protocol to this stuff, and Rick wasn't following it. Prosecutors in his position simply do not testify before Congress. That was the job of the bigger guns, the U.S. attorneys themselves, or the top guys in D.C. Misreading the politics of this situation, ignoring the office politics completely, was about to have much more serious consequences for Rick than he understood. Rick's supervisor in Detroit, Keith Corbett, called him. He told me that... um whatever I did uh, really stoked the fires and that they were talking about firing me. That uh, they believed that I was off the reservation. Off the reservation. I said, Jesus Christ, you know, I helped build the damn reservation. Now, you know, I'm off it? And, uh, well, how'd I get off it? You know, because they kicked me off it. Two days later, Rick was subpoenaed to testify before Congress. He couldn't very well ignore a subpoena, but on the other hand, he could maybe fight the subpoena. The Justice Department had done that in the past. Rick called Keith Corbett for guidance, 
They don't talk to each other anymore, but at the time, they were still friends. Here's Keith. And I said, Rick, why don't you come in the office on Monday morning, then we'll call Main Justice, and we'll see how we're going to handle this. Rick said, I can't do that. i got to catch a plane. I said, Rick, you don't have to catch a plane. I mean, you're supposed to testify on Tuesday afternoon. And I said, come in in the morning. We'll figure out what the department wants you to do. He said, I can't do that. i got to take the first flight out. I said, I, I don't understand that. I, I think it was, you know, it was putting your thumb in everybody's eye. I mean, the department, the U.S. attorney here, if you know you're not supposed to do something and you go ahead and do it because you want to do it, to me, it's like, I don't know what they're so upset about. Well, you ought to know what they're upset about. So I think that that was a, um, a significant event in terms of the perception by the administration as to where Rick was and whether he was totally out of control and, and, and just going off on his own uh, tangent. The truth of it was Rick wanted to testify. He'd won this big case and all he got was a reprimand. So he flew to Washington. The night before the hearing, he had a private meeting with Senator Grassley. The way Rick tells it, it was supposed to be just a quick introduction, a pro forma courtesy before the next day's hearing. But almost immediately, Rick found himself talking about all the things his bosses didn't want him talking about, the infighting, the mismanagement, to the very man they didn't want him talking to. He shook my hand and then um, asked me a question or two and... uh, and when, um, when I hesitated, I think he, he understood that there was more there. So what did you say to him? I told him that um, when he asked me, uh, did you have all the resources you needed? And I said, absolutely, no, we did not. Uh, did you have the manpower you needed? No, we did not. He was um, genuinely stunned. At least that was my impression. Uh, the meeting... Um, ended up going on for a very long time and I think he canceled what he had uh, at 5.15 and um, he asked me some pointed questions regarding the way the the trial proceeded. Mr. Convertino, we'll begin with your testimony. In the hearing room the next morning, a bunch of people from justice sat themselves down behind Rick within earshot, a move he says was meant to throw him off. Sir, this case started... Uh, make sure your microphone's on, please, and maybe you just pull it up and maybe just a little bit closer. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good morning, sir. <clears throat> sir, this case started in... During his testimony, Rick didn't utter one word from his conversation the day before with Grassley. He says he never had any intention of complaining publicly, and he told Grassley so. Instead, he just talked about the evidence in the case, stuff like this. They talked about acquiring shoulder-held missiles to shoot down airplanes. And this. They referred to Las Vegas, Mr. Chairman, as the city of Satan. And this. Uh, Oh, Allah, kill them all. Don't give them any, don't leave them any alive. Oh, Allah, be without them, whoever believes. If anything, it was actually what Grassley said that got Rick into more hot water. Mr. Convertino, I think you are a model public servant, and, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you should be hailed as a hero. I could hear people behind me, you know, commenting. So, you know, and I cringed when he said it myself because I knew that any time, the more that type of language was being used, the worse it was going to be for me when I got back to Detroit. Unfortunately for Rick, there was a lot more of that talk, 
particularly after Grassley let fly this theatrical flourish. I also want to note that federal law prohibits any retaliation or any discrimination against any person who testifies to the Congress, 18 U.S.C. Section 1505. I certainly don't expect there to be repercussions because Mr. Convertino is here to explain how Justice Department is winning the war on terrorism. What's strange is that that's exactly true. Nobody was publicly embarrassed. The Justice Department itself couldn't have scripted it better. Rick even threw in an Al-Qaeda reference. And Grassley didn't launch any investigation. But Rick's testimony violated the way things are done at the Justice Department. So just by breaching protocol in this flagrant way, he'd gone from being an irritant to an outright traitor. According to Rick, it wasn't just because he'd testified. It was because his bosses now became convinced that he'd been tattling to Grassley all through the case, complaining secretly for months about how justice had mishandled the whole thing. Rick couldn't persuade them it wasn't true. When I came back to, to Detroit, it was, you know, as, as it was if I shot uh, everyone's dog in the office. You know, I was a pariah, and, you know, it was clear to me that uh, their motivations now were to, you know, to punish me. Six days after Rick got home, Grassley wrote a formal letter to John Ashcroft and the U.S. attorney in Detroit, the first of a slew of letters warning them not to retaliate against Rick for his testimony. That very same day, Rick says the campaign of retaliation began. His bosses told him he was being reassigned to be a duty AUSA, a position they'd created just for him. It was as close as they could come to making him a secretary. And that's not all. They told him they'd be reviewing every case he'd ever prosecuted, and they began interviewing judges and other court officials, asking them questions like, has Convertino ever lied to you? I went to um, court one time after that, and there was a defense attorney who I had known uh, for some time. I was always on you know, friendly terms with him. He told me uh, that um, there's nothing worse than a crooked prosecutor. Those were the only words he said to me. Uh, I mean, crooked was uh, certainly never an, an adjective that was uh, applied to me in anything I did. Um, it was, you know, abundantly clear to me that that uh, that I wasn't going to go back in there and ever stand up before a jury and say, my name is Rick Convertino and I represent the United States of America. Coming up, a prosecutor experiences what it is like to be the defendant with all the power of the federal government like a huge cannon now pointed at him. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This is American Life, Myra Glass. Today on our program, if you're just tuning in, the very strange story of the first terrorism case that came after September 11th. When Petra Bartosiewicz left off her story before the break, it was fall of 2003. The government had just started its first investigations into the case's prosecutor, Rick Convertino. Four months later, someone inside the Department of Justice leaked details of an internal inquiry into Rick's conduct. The Detroit Free Press published a story that included quotes from anonymous justice officials and from defense attorneys who knew Rick from the courtroom. That was a front-page story in January 17th, which was uh, uh, the worst day of my life. Possible misconduct, ethical violations. He believes in trial by ambush, rogue prosecutor. That's just some of the stuff printed about Rick. The article said investigators were looking into whether he'd broken the rules in the sleeper cell case and whether he'd withheld evidence during the trial. I mean, I don't know how to, what, what words to describe what it did. It, it was, um, you know, it uh, ruined the case, uh, ruined, uh, ruined me professionally. So, we uh, used my daughter's um, senior year in high school, her tuition, and uh, pooled some money together and uh, sued the bastards. By bastards, he meant former Attorney General John Ashcroft, along with a couple of other department officials. He sued because the Detroit Free Press story was based on a confidential investigation that clearly was leaked from inside the Justice Department. It's actually against the law to leak information like that. What upset Rick the most in the article was not something written about him, but something that every single person I spoke to, even inside the Justice Department, agrees is pretty awful. It has to do with a confidential informant named Marwan Farhat, whom Rick enlisted to do translation work for the terrorism prosecution. Here's Stephen Cohn, the lawyer Rick hired to represent him in his civil lawsuit. In Rick Convertino's case, they leaked the name of one of his critical informants, a person who was of Middle Eastern descent, currently undercover in counter in terrorism related and criminal related investigations he's actually undercover and they put his name into the newspapers and rick when they learned this flipped out had to rush over and literally get him from his house to save his life and work with the fbi to put him on a plane back to a middle eastern nation thank you for your service to the united states Those people should be in prison. Who did that? If I did it, I'd go to jail. Look what they did to try to find in the Valerie Plain thing. Rick's lawsuit didn't stop with the leak to the Detroit Free Press. He went on to accuse the Justice Department of mismanaging the war on terror. All the stuff Rick's bosses didn't want him talking to Grassley about was now laid out in a public lawsuit. What's more, he'd hired Cohn, who happens to run the National Whistleblower Center. In other words an organization in the same camp as the Justice Department's other constant critic, Senator Charles Grassley. Rick was now, publicly, the enemy of his former bosses. The Justice Department reacted to the lawsuit the way you might expect. They did what they do best, opened more investigations. Here's Rick. 
There was an investigation from the Executive Office of U.S. Attorneys that was launched, where an attorney from Buffalo, New York, and an attorney from Manhattan were teamed together to come and investigate me. There were um, investigations by my office of all of my cases. There were investigations by the Public Integrity Section. There were investigations by the Office of um, a Professional Responsibility. There were uh, investigations by the Office of Inspector General. They subpoenaed my law school records, my college records, my high school records, my high school records. They subpoenaed my bank records, my phone records. I mean, they talked to over 100 people. Rick is sure the department expended more money and more manpower on investigating him than they did on the original sleeper cell case. Then, in December of 2003, six months after the verdicts in the sleeper cell case, a very problematic letter surfaced. And this was the moment when all the investigations into Rick started to eat away at the substance of the sleeper cell case itself. The letter had to do with the government's key witness at the trial, a guy named Youssef Mimza, who had lived with the defendants and who said that they were planning violent attacks, that they really were a sleeper cell. This letter turned out to be the thread that once pulled unraveled the entire terrorism case. It was big news. At issue, a letter the prosecution did not turn over to the defense until last month, well after the trial. It was written by an imprisoned drug gang leader who says that he was in the jail cell next to Mimza. In it, the gang leader claims that Mimza told him that he, quote, lied to the FBI how he fooled the Secret Service agent on his case. Sources say justice officials are very concerned about what the judge will decide and say they admit the prosecution made a mistake. The judge ordered a hearing. Rick told him he knew about the letter, but that he and his supervisor, Keith Corbett, discussed it, and Keith said he didn't need to turn it over. The only thing I can tell you, Judge, is it slipped through the cracks, Rick said. Then two of Rick's bosses began contradicting each other about who'd ordered whom to do what. Basically, it was two people from the Justice Department calling each other liars in open court. The judge was so disgusted by the withheld evidence that he ordered the government to do a full review of all the evidence in the case. This is the most unpleasant task that I've had in almost 14 years as a judge, he said. The Justice Department appointed a prosecutor named Craig Morford to lead the review. When it was released, the Morford report was 60 pages long, a litany of accusations against Rick. That he misrepresented the intelligence, that he shopped for expert opinions that bolstered his theory, and most damningly, that he simply didn't turn over evidence that would have been favorable to the defense, breaking the most basic rule of prosecutorial conduct. With the Morford report, it was as if the government switched sides and overnight started working for the defense, questioning the veracity of every major piece of evidence in the case. The day it was filed, the defense attorneys were actually seen outside the courthouse giving each other high fives. They felt vindicated. They thought Rick had been holding back evidence all through the trial. For example, they say it was many months into the case before they finally got their hands on the day planner, a central piece of evidence. So then the Morford report came out, and pretty soon the defense attorneys got over a thousand pages of documents that the government said they should have had all along. Some of the new information was irrelevant, but still. Rick Helfrick, one of the attorneys who defended Kareem Kubridi, said he and his partners were stunned. If you would have told me 
that we were going to get turned over to us when this was all over, the amount of material that was turned over to us that hadn't been turned over, I would have said you were crazy, that that, that couldn't happen in this district, you know, with this office. Um, or quite frankly, I wouldn't have thought it could happen anywhere in this country. But it did. One of the main revelations in the thousand pages had to do with that blob on the day planner sketch that you heard about earlier in the story. Remember, the sketch was supposedly of the American Air Force Base in Inserlik, Turkey. At trial, Rick's witness said that the Air Force intelligence was unanimous about the blob, that it depicted a hardened bunker used to house fighter jets. But the Morford report claimed that at least two intelligence officers didn't agree with that analysis and warned Rick that it might not be a bunker, that it might be a map of the Mideast, specifically the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Here's another defense attorney on the case, Jim Thomas. He knew that it was a map of the Middle East. It wasn't Inserlik. His own witnesses told him so, and he never told us. I mean, those things are central. Brick Convertino intentionally and deliberately withheld evidence. This was the possibility opened up by the Morford report. Maybe Rick was corrupt, intentionally and deliberately breaking the rules. Rick says there's no question here at all. Not only was he not corrupt, he was fair and thorough, even when it came to identifying that blob. He says he showed it to three different intelligence experts. No one told us that that was a map of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. No one ever told me that that was a map of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. They represented it was a hardened bunker. In fact, they represented the specific number of the hardened bunker at the airbase. Rick rejects the Morford report. He says the standard Morford is holding him to is ridiculously high, that no other case could survive this kind of scrutiny. And there's not a single mistake he's copping to. And he's not denying the mistakes in a knee-jerk way, either. He can explain every discrepancy, and he does. The evidence Morford says was purposely withheld was not, or moreover, didn't exist in the first place. And even if it did, it wasn't significant, and so he wasn't required to turn it over. The people Morford claims said things about Rick did not say those things, and in fact, in a couple of cases, were asked to lie. I asked him about almost every point in Morford, and he did not budge. You know, if somebody, you, 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 the intimation is, and sometimes more direct than that, the accusation is that, that I drove this personally, that a single and sole assistant United States attorney on the ground in Detroit, Michigan, drew his own conclusions regarding the viability of the case, the importance of the case, and what all of these pieces of evidence meant, and that I brought an indictment solely and that I prosecuted this case solely is absurd and ridiculous. These repeated allegations, innuendos, continue to come, and it's obscene that I have to sit here and answer this crap. The allegations in Morford could have been hashed out in a court hearing where the judge would have decided what to do, maybe grant a retrial, maybe do nothing. But this didn't happen. Instead, the Justice Department went for the nuclear option. 
Dan Rather interrupted his live coverage of the Republican National Convention to report it. There's been a setback tonight in the war on terror. The Justice Department is now recommending dismissal of convictions in a Detroit terror cell case after admitting to a, quote, pattern of mistakes and oversights by federal prosecutors. The government voluntarily undoing its first jury trial terrorism convictions after 9-11 and not even bothering with a do-over. Keith Corbett, Rick's supervisor, couldn't get his head around it. Unlike Rick, he agreed with Morford that he and Rick made some mistakes during the trial, though not intentionally. But still, to just dismiss the case like that, and no retrial. Uh, Why? I don't know. Uh, You know, you probably could have tried that case again within three or four months, and I don't understand why that happened. Rick and his defenders believe the government undid the convictions for one reason— to discredit him. End of story. It, it, it defies all logic. That's not the way the Department of Justice operates. They fight tooth and nail uh, to defend cases. On every occasion, they fight to defend cases. On, I mean, wholly egregious cases uh, that uh, where discovery is, was you know, purposefully withheld, they fight. Why not here? This is one of the most confusing aspects of this whole story. Again, the Justice Department wouldn't talk to me for this report, so I couldn't ask them directly. But it does seem out of character, at least in terrorism cases, for the Justice Department to simply fold. Just last year, in the terrorism financing case of the Holy Land Foundation, after two mistrials, the government said it would try the case a third time. The same thing, two mistrials, happened in the case of the Miami 7. The government plans to retry that case a third time, too. True, neither of these involved accusations of prosecutorial misconduct. But even so, the government's overall position on terrorism cases has been aggressive from start to end. Jeff Breinholt, the former terrorism guy from the Justice Department, believes they probably could have retried the sleeper cell case successfully. And when my producer Sarah Koenig and I asked him about it, he had a hard time explaining why they didn't go back to court. It it potentially could have been a circus environment and... It was, you know, a decision was made to cut the loss, cut the losses. It sounds almost like you're saying they just want to be rid of it. Yeah. What Rick Convertino will say and what even colleagues who are mad at him will say is it looks very much as if the Department of Justice sacrificed this case in order to bring him no. down personally. No. Okay. no Why is that not true? Answer, I think we sacrifice cases all the time. In the interest of justice, in the interest of justice in this case, according to the people who made that decision, were to walk away from a case where a jury had found somebody guilty. The fact that a case got to this point, it doesn't make this the, the, a personal vendetta or, a, or, a, or the first time in human history this has ever happened. I mean, do you understand from where we sit that it looks kind of extreme to, to, for the department to let it go? Um, perhaps. I can see that. But, uh, but I also think people who who think that often don't give the department credit for uh, doing the right thing. A year and a half after the sleeper cell convictions were reversed, in the spring of 2006, all the investigations into Rick's conduct finally came to fruition. The Justice Department indicted Rick on criminal charges for suppressing evidence in the sleeper cell case. Now we're at the part of the story Rick calls his bogus month-long bull trial. If you believe Rick and his lawyer, this was all classic retribution, with very suspicious timing. 
For a federal prosecutor to be criminally indicted in the line of duty is practically unheard of. Not that prosecutors haven't misbehaved. They just don't get called out like this. If anything, the Justice Department has been criticized for years for failing to police its own. Rick says that what was most amazing and dispiriting was that the government was setting out to destroy him, and there was nobody to stop them, and no one cared. Though, of course, the defendants in the sleeper cell case might say exactly the same thing about him and about the Justice Department when they were on trial, that there was a political agenda at work, that the evidence against them was viewed in the worst possible light, that no one was giving them the benefit of the doubt. The criminal trial took place in the same courthouse where Rick prosecuted the terrorism case, an irony that wasn't lost on the accused terrorists. One of them showed up just to watch. I walked into that courtroom, and um, uh, the first person that I saw uh, was Kareem Kabridi, who was um, locked on to me, sitting in glory because the justice system was now transplanting his role for mine. The world was upside down. Um, I could not believe that, that I was in there as a defendant. The main charges were obstruction of justice and conspiracy. He faced a potential prison sentence of 30 years. After all the questions raised by the Morford report, the only criminal misconduct the government thought it could prove in the trial had to do with some photos that weren't turned over to the defense in the sleeper cell case. The government claimed Rick conspired to conceal them. An old friend of Rick's, Greg Stasekel, went to his trial almost every day. He's an attorney and a former FBI agent. As I sat and listened to the evidence and everything else, I thought, you know, where's the case? There has to be something more here. There has to, The government would not criminally prosecute Rick based on what I've heard so far. There must be somebody that's going to come in and say, yeah, I saw Rick look at those pictures, and I, he told me that, you know, we can't let the defense have these pictures or something. And I sat through the whole thing, and I got to the end, and I thought, that's it? That's the best they can do? And so the final conclusion I came to was, all right, they're, they're either incredibly stupid, which, you know, they're not, or they deluded themselves into believing that there was something there that wasn't. Uh, almost like a mass hysteria kind of thing. It took the jurors less than a day to acquit Rick on all counts. So Rick sued Ashcroft. The Justice Department prosecuted Rick. Cabridi sued Rick. Rick sued the newspaper. Then Rick sued the Justice Department again, and he's considering a third lawsuit against them for malicious prosecution. What are we supposed to think about this whole sorry mess of lawsuits? Was Rick a rogue prosecutor? Was he the victim of a department-wide vendetta? What seems most likely to me, after spending months talking to all sides trying to figure it out, is this. Rick withheld information in the case that he should have turned over, but what he did was no different than what federal prosecutors do all the time. Withholding exculpatory evidence is the most common mistake prosecutors make at all levels of the justice system, and the reason it's so common is that it's a judgment call. Rick says he didn't think he was breaking the law. He thought he was playing fair, and that's perfectly believable, because there's a gray area concerning what evidence you have to turn over. Unfortunately for Rick, he's the rare prosecutor who got scrutinized. 
Normally, the Justice Department stands behind a prosecutor's choices, even questionable ones. But Rick lost that backup, which was the only safety net that ultimately mattered. And he lost that support not because of our national interest or any high-minded principles of fair play. He lost it because of his attitude. I was surprised to hear one of his old bosses, Jeff Breinhold, admit as much. No, that's, we, that's a, that is an important factor. I mean, it's people... I, I always laugh when people say, people try to equate what happened to... Uh, how, how Bill Clinton was treated compared to Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon didn't make it, whereas Bill Clinton did. And I always say... You know, there's a little secret in politics. It really matters whether people like you. So getting how you get along with people is going to affect what happens to you. It's going to affect how many people come to bat for you. There's plenty of ways this thing did not have to get to that point if he had acted differently. After all, Rick's immediate supervisor on the terrorism case, Keith Corbett, who co-prosecuted the case with Rick, who was in on every decision, was demoted in the wake of the investigations. But he certainly wasn't indicted. People liked Keith. Keith wasn't threatening to punch out his colleagues. Rick says he doesn't regret anything about the way he handled the case, including, he told my producer, mouthing off to his bosses. You had to know that all these people had egos and that every time you did that, you were burning a bridge. I, I did know that, but, but you know, the, the, the bridges that were being burnt were small and inconsequential. But were they? They were. They were and they are to me now because what are we doing? You know, what, what, you take an oath as an assistant U.S. attorney working for the federal government in the Department of Justice, for Christ's sake. You know, what, what higher plane can an attorney be on? Rick, come on, you've been yeah. in the office. You knew as well as anyone the politics of this office. It just sounds so naive for you to say, like, but but we were serving the public good. Like, they're gonna they're gonna come back and slaughter you. And they did. They tried. They tried. And you're right. I mean, it was it imprudent. Maybe you know. Maybe. Uh, well, listen. I mean, I what you said was naive. I believe. I believe to this day. And I, the first time that I saw it was when I was in Washington D.C. and had some early success. I had a case, the only case I've lost to this day was in, you know, the early 90s. And um, when I lost it, the attitude of my coworkers seemed to be that they were happy that I lost the case. And in fact, I raised that issue and was told, yeah, yeah, they are. That was the first time I saw it. And, and I thought, you know, I don't care if you don't like me. to forget there was a terrorism case under all of this, and maybe either innocent men were convicted or guilty men were freed. To this day, the Justice Department has made a point of not taking a position on this question. They've never said the men weren't terrorists. This in particular angers Kareem Kabridi. They never apologized to me. What, you think I'm a piece of garbage treating me like that and just, just be happy you're out? What? I don't like to be treated that way, really. And that's, I don't feel justice was done. Are you a terrorist? No, I am not. Sometimes, sometimes I really ask myself this question. <laughs> you guys make me, <laughs> make me think. You know, when sometimes you hear stuff about you, you sit and say, oh, you could, what is this? Is this a joke or something? I never hurt my 
anybody in my life, anybody, I never even think to hurt anybody in my life. And I don't have any reason to be a terrorist. I am from Morocco. I am not from Palestine. I am not from Afghanistan. I'm not an Iraqi. I really didn't have any bad feelings about the United States. I really don't care about politics. I just want to have a, a good future. That's the only reason I came to the United States. So what's terrorist mean? A Muslim? I am a Muslim. If you want to think I'm a terrorist because I'm Muslim, I can't, I can't control that. But if, you, if he means terrorist, that's somebody who's trying to hurt innocent people, I think he is the terrorist. Rick's the terrorist, Kabridi says, because he knew all along they weren't terrorists. That's why he's suing Rick now. And I think what enrages Rick the most is that he now lives in a world where someone like Kabridi can accuse him, a former federal prosecutor, of being a terrorist, that his credibility has been so eviscerated, that he has to defend his most basic beliefs. You think these guys were terrorists? Um, there's, beyond all peradventure, there's no question in my mind for Rick, this is the bottom line. His job was to protect people, and it was a responsibility he took seriously. He was a soldier in the war on terror, and he believes he accomplished his mission. He shut down a sleeper cell. He prevented the terrorists from striking again. So, you know, I weigh that. What personal cost and professional cost did I pay for what may have been preventing a strike. I think we did a, um, a very important thing here. Now Rick is a criminal defense attorney. So far he's good at it. Seven for seven. He specializes in law enforcement officers who get in trouble on the job. A state trooper accused of murder. A cop charged with assault. People whose bosses aren't backing them up. These guys come to him, Rick says, because he's been through what they're going through. They know how angry he is. And they want that working for them. Petra Bartosiewicz. She's writing a book called The Best Terrorists We Could Find on this and other Justice Department cases in the war on terror. It's coming out in spring 2009. Well, our program today on our story about Rick Convertino was produced by Sarah Koenig with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Some music in today's show by Pierre Tacal. Special thanks today to Bill Davis and Charles DeArmond at the National Archives. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by the Saab 93 family, a sports sedan, sport combi, and all-season convertible. Saab, born from jets. Learn more at saabusa.com. And by Showtime, bringing a new season of real-life stories to television, namely the real-life stories on the television version of our program, This American Life. It's now on the air with new episodes Sundays, 10 o'clock, and they repeat pretty much every day of the week. 1-800-SHOWTIME or SHO.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who's been eyeing both my ass and my shoulders lately with one thing running through his head. My dad always used to say, never trust a man whose ass is wider than his shoulders. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Who are the terrorists? Who are the heroes? Double standards. Who are the terrorists? Who are the heroes? Double standards. Who are the terrorists? PRI Public Radio International.